Do I have more courage to buy a property or do I have the courage to think, well, in 10 years, if I never buy a property, what will happen? It wasn't more of being scared of buying the property is being scared of what would happen if I never started, if I never bought that first property, because I knew that first deal would be so important just to get the momentum rolling. And it wasn't a home run deal. I mean, if anything, it was a single base hit. It was it cash flowed. It was in a lower income neighborhood, you know, not the best area, but not the worst either. So I was more scared of if I didn't take action, what the next 10 years of my life would look like. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will teach you how to build a wealth with real estate without buying yourself another job. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is John Paul Kessinger. John Paul is a real estate investor and property manager who used to be a firefighter slash EMT and decided he needed another way, another stream of passive income so that one day he wouldn't have to have those 24 to 48 hour shifts that he had as a firefighter and EMT. And you know what? He accomplished it. He set a goal and started investing in real estate. And today that's what we're focusing on. We're focusing on how he found that first deal, how he evaluated that deal and some very concrete steps that he took to leverage the power of relationships and networking to evaluate that deal and moving on from that first deal into number two and so much more. Now he is a real estate investor, a property manager and a realtor and is out of those 24 to 48 hour shifts as a firefighter and EMT. I really appreciate having John Paul on the show today because he brings integrity to everything that he does. And that really shines through in this conversation. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor. I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. To date, I've acquired, partnered on, or had a hand in over $250 million of commercial real estate acquisitions. If you'd like to learn more about potentially partnering with us in the future, just go to investwithtaylor.com or click the link in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Now, let's get with John Paul. Out there, could you tell us what you're up to in real estate today, and then we'll rewind the clock and talk about how and why you got started as a real estate investor. Yeah, Taylor, thank you for having me on first and foremost. So I am currently a realtor and a property manager in Bridgeport, West Virginia. For those of you who don't know where that's at, central part of West Virginia, about 30 minutes south of Morgantown and WVU. I got into real estate mainly because I owned a small trucking company with my brothers. We worked a lot in the oil fields. And in the oil fields, it was either feast or famine. There was no real stability there. And that, as I started my own family, that was something I really desired. I wanted to provide stability for my wife and for my future kids. And the more I researched and the more I looked into it, I realized the only real way to get stability is to get a asset that, you know, isn't going to fluctuate depending on politics or change depending on what the market's doing. And the only answer I could find that you know met that criteria was real estate. It seemed like a safe, long-term investment for me and my future. Absolutely. So you had a really uh, interesting and I think motivating and compelling experience as a firefighter slash EMT early in COVID that really kicked you off in the real estate space. Tell us about that and how that really compelled you to start buying real estate. Yeah. So. When I first got married, I stepped out of the trucking arena just to be home more, you know, working the oil fields. We'd be gone for two to three weeks at a time, then home for a week. And when I started 
when I got married and wanted to start my family, I didn't want to always be gone. So I went from being a volunteer fire firefighter at my station to a paid position on a 1099 and got my EMT card, got you know my certifications to work the ambulance. And it, that was about the same time COVID was kicking off. And I got the opportunity to go on a deployment through FEMA. And it was an amazing opportunity. I got to serve the great people of the state of New York. I was mainly in upstate New York near Buffalo, working inner city on a 911 truck. And that really gave me a springboard into real estate because I know a lot of people want to get into real estate, but money is always the biggest objection I have seen. People think, well, I don't have the money to get into real estate. And thankfully, the government you know, was writing the checks for the people that were up there. We worked 60 days straight, no days off, 12-hour uh, shifts a day. And it was a lot of hard work, and we thankfully did a lot of good. And the government, you know, surprisingly, backed us up and gave us a, a good little paycheck for it. And that's how I was able to springboard my way into my first property, which eventually, really that same amount of money, I was able to roll into every single property through the Burr method and refinancing them. And using that same initial chunk of money to purchase every property. That's great. So let's dig into really how you got the idea to do that first Burr deal, because starting from having done no real estate deals, you might not even know that's possible to buy a property, fix it up, refinance it, rent it out, and keep rolling forward to do the next one. So how did you come across or come up with the idea to do that first deal? So... To be honest with you, I got stuck in, I want to call it investment purgatory for a long time. I researched real estate for probably two years before I finally worked up the courage to make my first move. And I feel like that's another stumbling block for potential investors, people who want to get into real estate, but don't know what to do first. So they spend all their time studying real estate, get burned out on it, and eventually don't. And I was listening to podcasts about it, watching YouTube just consuming as much information as I could. Did a lot of COVID swabbing with my fire department. I'd travel all around my state and do the COVID test that everybody hated. And I hated giving them just as much as everybody hated having them done. But that would, I would drive two to three hours sometimes a day and then sit in one spot for eight hours and then have to drive back home. And I spent all of that time researching real estate because I knew that was the direction I wanted me and my family to go. And actually my first deal came from a bigger pockets forum. Actually, He, a gentleman who lived 45 minutes away from me, who had a house near me, uh, messaged me and asked me if I would like to purchase it. And my first purchase, well, actually all my purchases were pocket listings like that. So no real estate agent, just sort of the blind leading the blind there of us trying to figure out how to do a real estate transaction when neither of us had never done it without an agent. So. How did you work up the courage to do that deal? Because it's frankly scary enough to do your first deal if you're buying it with an agent off of the MLS and have folks there to walk you through the process of closing on the deal. But buying a property off market from somebody that you met, but you don't really know and making your own business plan, there's so much that goes into a sex successful investment. How did you work up the courage to keep taking that next step that you needed to take along the way? Yeah. So ultimately it was looking at the situation as a whole. Do I have more courage to buy a property or do I have the courage to think, well, in 10 years, if I never buy a property, 
what will happen. It wasn't more of being scared of buying the property is being scared of what would happen if I never started, if I never bought that first property, because I knew that first deal would be so important just to get the momentum rolling. And it wasn't a home run deal. I mean, if anything, it was a single base hit. It was it cash flowed. It was in a lower income neighborhood, you know, not the best area, but not the worst either. So I was more scared of if I didn't take action, what the next 10 years of my life would look like. Well, you know, a couple of base hits will get you all the way to, yes. uh, to home. That'll get you a home run. So nothing wrong with that. As far as running the numbers and analyzing the deal, how did you approach that? Because it's, again, tough to know what to do the first time around. I'm sure there are a lot of lessons learned along the way, but how did you start? And then we'll go through how you refined your deal analysis process. Yeah. So when I first started, it was pen and paper and the calculator on my phone, not the most advanced method. But, you know, between that and Googling mortgage calculators and trying to look at realtor.com to see what properties were renting for, it was like, well, I think I might be able to cash flow this, maybe not. And then I was lucky enough to reach out to a gentleman I knew who owned a few rental properties. And he was kind enough to walk the property with me and say, yeah, you should uh, definitely take this. You know, you're not going to get insanely wealthy off this, but it is a great first step. And the most important step is the first one. Totally agree. I think a big transformation that all real estate investors go through, whether they know it or not, is going from not being a real estate investor to doing that deal and becoming a real estate investor. That mental transformation of, I am a real estate investor, really puts you in a different place to go on and do that second, third, and so on deal, do all the subsequent deals. So let's talk a business plan for that deal to the extent that there was a business plan, right? When you're new, you don't know necessarily how to make one, but how did you approach that renovations, renting it out, everything? Yeah. So thankfully you didn't need a ton of renovations, really just needed a deep clean. It was near a college campus and college students were the ones renting it. So you can imagine it wasn't damaged, but wasn't the cleanest property in the world either. So a lot of elbow grease from me and my wife, just going in there and scrubbing everything down and trying to make it look as nice as possible to attract, you know, a good tenant. So we went in there and cleaned it out. Didn't really have a business plan at this point. And it's funny enough, we weren't even, we didn't even put it in an LLC. We just ran it underneath our own name. And you know, the main reason behind that was, is the house we were living in wasn't ours. It was a family friends that we were living in while we fixed it up. So we, that was really our only asset. So we didn't feel the need to even put it in LLC. And eventually that came back to bite us in the butt when we started getting more assets and needed some protection there, some liability protection between us personally and company-wise. Okay. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about that. What happened down the road as a result of owning that property in your own name? Yeah. So they do on sell clause. We wanted to move it into our company's name. We use a local bank and they are wonderful. They went out of their way to help us, but they're, they didn't want us to be able to just sign the property over to our own name. And then interest rates started going up, which means when we were going to, we had to, have to refinance it into our company's name and interest rates started going up. And it just became, you know, in order to get it moved over, we we're going to be paying an extra 2% in interest on the loan. And so we're losing money a little bit more. We're not losing money, but we're not making as much money now as we were when we first bought the property. So you did refinance it into a loan 
ba- to your LLC's yes. name rather than your own name. Yeah, okay. we refinanced it into our LLC's name. So that due on sale clause is a big one because in the maybe, I don't know, late 20 teens or around when I was getting started in real estate around 2016, it was kind of just a rumor that clause existed. <laughs> of course it did, but the meme was, ah, but banks aren't doing anything about that. They're not yeah. tracking it or anything, but it sounds like your bank kind of came after you about that and was like, no, well, we, we're calling this loan. I wouldn't say they came after me. My big thing is integrity. I don't want to do anything that could even be close to, I don't want to say shady because I don't think that's necessarily shady because you know my LLC was 100% mine. So it was really just a different way of looking at me owning a property, but I want to be above reproach on everything I do. So I actually approached my bank since I had a relationship with them and told them what I was wanting to do. And I didn't want that to be an issue down the road for my reputation with that bank since they had gone out of their way to help me on other deals. Even, you know, they allowed me to, but they did, I went to them and asked if I could refinance the loan before that so I could have a down payment for another house. They're like, well, instead of doing that, why don't we just put a second position here on this house and we'll take that off your down payment on this one. And they've really been creative and worked with me before that. So I didn't want to try to go around their back. I want to do everything with as much moral integrity as I can, even if it's something that could have got away with and they may not have cared, I would still rather face the consequences immediately and ask for permission. I appreciate that and and I respect the uh, your integrity on that matter. So moving on from that first deal onto the second one, continuing to scale your portfolio, Sometimes folks, I think, get stuck after that first deal because they hit some struggles or maybe it's cash flowing, but it's not quite as much as we expected. And I don't know if I want to bother doing the next one or learning lessons and maybe doing it better next time. But you did move on to that second one. So tell us about the subsequent deals and and things that you learned along the way. Yeah. So I had a very real conversation with my wife as I was just sort of discussing with it, discussing it with her. She's not super active in the real estate arena with me, but she's very supportive of me. And I had to explain to her there are safety in numbers in rentals. Right now, we are most vulnerable when we have one. You know, if roof breaks, we start leak, getting leaks in the roof, or, you know, heaven forbid it floods or catches on fire, something like that. We are at the most risk with only one. But if we have 20, then one roof leaking is not as big of a deal as if you have one and that roof is leaking. So I had to have, you know, conversation with her about that and say, you know, we really need to get into another property. And at around the same time, my fire chief at the time was moving to Pennsylvania and he was looking to sell his house. And everybody at the fire department knew that I was into real estate because that's how I spent my time. You know, when I was ever at the station, I was listening to podcasts or reading articles. So my fire chief approached me. He was like, hey, I don't really want to sell my property and have to pay an agent. Would you be interested in buying it from me just between the two of us so I can save that 6%? And he said, I'll even take 3% off of the appraisal value. That way it's a fair deal for everybody. I was like, yeah, it was a duplex, which you know really struck my interest. And it was four minutes from my house, which was even more interesting for me. I knew I could really put the work in there and do a lot of the work myself, which I learned the hard way. Sometimes it's cheaper and faster to pay someone to do something than for you to go out and do it yourself. I joked with my wife by the time I bought all my tools that I needed for the jobs and I could have paid somebody half as much and got it done probably 
two months earlier and collected two months worth of rent. So we were able to put a second position on our first house since we had, we bought it with about 20, 20 to $25,000 in equity. So we were able to put a second position on that house in lieu of a down payment. And the bank required a 20% down payment. I think we ended up paying a 5% down payment out of pocket, which was, you know, a huge save because then we had the money for me not to pay somebody and to buy all the tools to do it myself. Learned a lot of valuable lessons doing that. And you know, I've got a lot more skills now from doing it, but I think in the long run, it would have better served me to have someone else do it. I would tend to agree with that, but sometimes we need to right. learn that lesson. Yes, and it's important the hard way. it is. And now when I get a quote from a contractor, I'm not sitting there scratching my head wondering, well, how did he come up with that number? Where is that coming from? Where if a contractor is trying to pull one over, I have a better detector for that now because I've done the work. And I've done it on another property. I've done some of the work there and I do enjoy it, but I didn't get into real estate for another full-time job. I got into real estate to, as a passive investment out of the gate. And, you know, I've just fallen more in love with it and decided to get my realtor's license and you know, enjoyed managing property. So became a property manager. So it strikes me how, how good of a job you've done in I hesitate to use the word leveraging, but I'm going to use it anyway in leveraging relationships and people who, you know, so you can be, have be mutually beneficial relationships and you can, you know, further your investments and, and everything. So going back to that first deal, you talked to somebody who you knew who had experience in real estate to get their opinion on the deal. And then the second deal you bought from somebody who you knew that was looking to get out of it. Can you talk to us a bit about how you think about relationships and fostering them and you know, making sure there's a, like a free exchange of ideas and you can call on somebody when you need their assistance and say their opinion on a deal. Yeah. So in my opinion, real estate, the real estate industry is not about, it's not centered around houses, it's centered around relationships, how you can relate to people and your reputation in the area. And, you know, I've, done my best to have a reputation of someone with character, with integrity. And, you know, I feel comfortable saying that publicly is this holds me accountable. It holds me to a standard that I'm setting for myself on a, in a public arena right now. And I think that, well, I'll put it this way. My father said something that has always stuck with me. All ships rise with the tide. I don't think that real estate is the type of industry where in order for me to succeed, Taylor has to fail. I, that's not the arena we're in. There is so much out there, so many opportunities out there that everyone can win on every deal. If people are willing to work together and be fair, uh, you know, it's, it's not so cutthroat, especially in West Virginia, you know, there was investing in West Virginia is a great opportunity, especially since most of the purchase prices are lower. Now you're not going to get as rich in equity in the state, but it's a great place to start in order to get cash flow in order to build up a reservoir to maybe invest somewhere closer to where you're at. So the people with, I've always suggested, well, you don't have enough money for real estate. Look in West Virginia. It can be a lot cheaper sometimes. But you have to be careful and know the area and have someone boots on the ground to see it. Um, but, you know, it's all about relationships. To go back to your question, um, it's being friendly. It's wanting other people to succeed. I would rather lose a couple dollars here and there and protect my name and my reputation and help someone else succeed because what comes around goes around. 
you know, that person, you know, if I lose a couple dollars on a deal in order to help someone else succeed, they're going to remember that. And where I don't surround myself with people who are backstabbers or, you know, out to get other people, they're willing to help me out when that time comes too. And we're all happy to do it because we're trying to build a community here. We're not trying to just get rich for the sake of getting rich. That is a perk of real estate, but we are trying to build and foster a growing and a healthy community and improve some of the neighborhoods that are deteriorating a little bit. And we all have that same understanding around us and the same end goals. So we can be on the same team, even if we have different companies. I love that. So you kind of pivoted and got into property management, providing property management for other investors, right? And and that's an industry where, you know, we lean a lot on property management in in my business. So having a property manager who acts with integrity is incredibly valuable. So tell us about how you made that switch or, you know, morphed into becoming a, a property manager and continuing to grow that business while, of course, maintaining your integrity because it's a pretty difficult business to get into. It is. It's very hard and you can be in very tough situations sometimes, situations you don't want to be in. But ultimately, I have a fiduciary duty to the property owner, not always to the tenant. And, you know, we can get into what evictions look like and sort of how I think I can still carry out an eviction and keep my integrity and be moral with that and ultimately, hopefully serve the tenant in the long term through that. But I realized that landlord and property manager in the real estate world, not necessarily the investing world, but the real estate world can be a dirty word. You know, you tell people that you're a property manager or you're a landlord and they give you sort of the side eye if you're talking to some realtors. I don't like that. And I know I can't change that in the state. I know I can't change, you know, being property manager, being a dirty word in the nation or even in my county, but in my brokerage, I can change that. In my town, I can change the perception of what property managers and landlords should look like. I can help contribute to that to where we are viewed as a valuable asset, not only to people who own property, but also to tenants because they know someone's going to answer the call when they have a leaky sink at 2 a.m. When, you know, heaven forbid a disaster happens and they need someone to show up at their door, you know, as someone who owns 10,000 units, they can't show up to all those personally. But you know, where I am at, me or someone on my staff can, and we will, and we do, and we show up with a smile and wanting to help everybody along the way. Very important. What class of rentals would you say that you manage? Because that kind of service with a smile is probably the most common in the higher end, a class rentals that are more expensive where there's, you know, frankly, more money on the table, but where you, West Virginia, I don't have a picture of a whole lot of a class markets out there. So you providing yeah. that in B and C. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole range of areas. So where I'm at currently in the Bridgeport-Clarksburg area, we do have some very wealthy upper class and upper middle class. You know, we have NASA located here. They have a, a facility here. The FBI has a facility here. And there are some really big industries in the area that people don't think that have locations in central West Virginia. I've always said this is the this state's the best kept secret. But also, you know, even going back to my time in Fire EMS, I have, you know, I've seen some pretty rough areas too. I've seen, you know, some of the lower middle class and I don't know why anyone would provide, would not provide service with a smile to those people either. They, at the end of the day, they're people who, they're human. 
And they just, at the very minimum, they deserve a basic level of respect. And me answering the phone call with, you know, what do you want? What is it this time? That's not serving anybody. That's ruining my relationship with that tenant. Ultimately, that's ruining the property owner's relationship with that tenant and their reputation. Because I, if anything, I am just, I'm representing them in everything I do. And I try to keep that in mind, even if the property isn't high end, high rent, high profit for me, because my name means more than any percentage of rent I could collect any month. You know, the little bit of dollars that one unit's giving me is not worth ruining my reputation. Love it. So before we move to the three questions I ask every guest in the show, I'd like to speak directly or ask you to speak directly to the firefighters and EMS folks who are out there that are listening. I have a few friends who are firefighters who have expressed interest into getting into real estate. And you know, we all have excuses and I give them a hard time about it, but I'm going to directly share this interview with them and get your comments for the firefighters and EMS out there who want to get into real estate, but aren't sure how to do it. Where would you point them? What would you tell them to do? I would say this podcast would be a great place to start. First and foremost, listening to some of the other episodes too. And then I would say, you know, online as a firefighter EMT. And first I want to say, I didn't have this beard when I worked on the ambulance and fire truck, but you know, this came after that. I would say you guys have a very unique insight on the community. You are inside people's homes all the time. You know what the average home looks like in the average neighborhood. And that's not a perspective really most or if any other investors are going to have. You don't know the level, the standard of care of most of the homes. They don't know the standard of care of most of the homes in your area. So you have that very unique insight and you can leverage that. That when you go to look at a house, you will know if it's comparable to the houses you've been at. And then I would say just research as much as you can and put money away. And when you have those long shifts, those 24, those 48, you know, obviously get your sleep, be rested and be ready for the next call. But that is a great opportunity to be able to research a little bit and make your next moves. That's where I learned probably 90% of what I know about real estate is from those down to that downtime. If you're on a busy station, you know, I get it, but also you have days off too. And if it's something you really want, think about what's worse. Spending a little bit of time now researching real estate or 20 years later, you know, your body's shot, you're tired, you're exhausted, you're burned out, and you have no other option but to show up to your next shift. You have no other option but to go work on the ambulance another day. I think about the opportunities you could get from diversifying your income and what that could really do to your life. You may not have to pick up as many shifts of overtime. You may not be forced to go in on holidays. You have a little bit of flexibility there, and that's time you can spend with your family. That's time you can spend doing what you want. You know, I know you probably love the job, but also you got to take care of you and your family first. I love that. Talking to you, Joe, out there, you know who you are, Joe. Yeah, I'm Joe. send this episode to you. <laughs> All right. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, John Paul, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. First one, what is your number one book recommendation? Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I know that's probably the answer everybody gets, but that I read that at, uh, you know when I was in high school and really changed the way I uh, viewed money. Great book. 
And then, yeah, I'd have to say that. I know it's a little bit of a cliche for real estate investors to say rich dad, poor dad, but tax-free wealth is another great book. Highly recommend it. It really opens your eyes to the opportunities of real estate. And also everybody thinks that tax write-offs are these loopholes that aren't intended, but it really shows you they're not loopholes. They're not these dirty millionaires trying to get out of paying taxes. The government's incentivizing them and they want them to do that. And the government's willing to pay for that. And also through recapture and other things, they're not really completely getting out of taxes. Most of the time, they're typically delaying it, but I'd have to really recommend um, tax-free wealth if you've read Rich Dad Poor Dad. Appreciate that. I really dislike the term tax loophole, exactly like you mentioned. They're in there for a reason and we should use them if they make sense. Well, and every country has them. You know, there's no way that every country accidentally added. So they're incentives for what the government wants you to do. 100%. Question number two, who or what inspires you? A lot of people. My father inspires me. You know, I've seen him build companies and, you know, in the oil fields, he owns a truck, a larger trucking company in the oil fields and makes a lot of money when the oil fields are doing well, but he's also able to navigate a company through the times when the oil fields aren't and keep dozens of people employed and helping them pay their bills every week. So he inspires me and also my father-in-law. He's another great man who's really got me plugged into a lot of good real estate resources. And, you know, he's another good man of integrity. Nice. Love this integrity you have going on. Question number three, think about John Paul at 80 years old. What advice would he give to John Paul of today? I think he'd say, slow down, smell the roses. You know, it doesn't matter if you build towards something, if you finally achieve it and you look back and you don't remember any of it, You didn't spend that time with your family. You didn't enjoy the process. I think he would say, take it day by day and enjoy every day for what it offers. I love it. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing this knowledge. If folks want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? Yes, they can find me on Facebook, John Paul Kessinger. I have a realtor page and also Bespoke Property Management. It's another Facebook. That's my management company's name here in Central West Virginia. They can reach me there. Or my business number is 304-931-2632. If you're interested in investing in Central West Virginia and you don't live here and need a property manager to help you find a property to invest in for a low down payment, you know, the property value here is lower so you can get into property easier. Feel free to reach out, shoot me a text or give me a call. We'd love to connect you with the people in this area and the banks here and get some deals started for you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And to everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate that so much. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one.